It's midnight, the podcasting hour. A merchant seaman named Angus Beam returns to the New England coastal village of Whalers Harbor. He walks right from the pier to the mansion home of Mary Bourne and demands that her father honor his promise. Three years ago, Angus agreed to sail on a dangerous voyage for Mr. Bourne. In return, when he came home, Bourne would give Angus a house captaincy of a ship, and Mary's hand in marriage. Mr. Bourne honors the bargain, despite believing that Angus only wants Mary for her money. After the wedding, Angus takes command of the ship Mary B., but he proves to be a poor and abusive captain, causing many of the crew to jump ship on distant ports. Forced to hire the worst available sailors to crew his ship, the Mary B. loses money with every trip. Increasingly desperate for Mary's inheritance, Angus decides to help the ailing Mr. Bourne to his death. At an exotic port, he purchases a chest containing a shrunken head. When Bourne lays eyes on the gift, he dies of fright. At the reading of Bourne's will, however, the only inheritance Angus receives is ownership of the Mary B, so that he might be able to hire a capable captain, one who can actually help turn a profit for Angus and Mary. The rest of Bourne's considerable wealth is willed to his brother and sister, who helped raise Mary and will continue to support her financially if her husband cannot. Angus erupts in outrage, confessing that he only ever cared about Mary's wealth, just as her father suspected. He packs a bag and tells Mary he's returning to the ship to get away from her. She swears that Angus will never be able to return to the harbor until the day she dies. Ignoring her warning, Angus Beam sets off in his ship, but when the Mary B. proves less than seaworthy, he tries to return. Mary watches this from the shore and repeats her warning, now a hated curse, that he shall not reach the harbor until the day she dies. Suddenly, a massive bolt of lightning strikes the Mary B. and sends it to the bottom of the sea. Every day thereafter, the widow Mary walked along the shore. Finally, after sixty years, Mary collapses during her walk. Just before she passes away, she bids her husband return. The beachgoers watch in horror as the rotted, ruined wreck of the Mary Bee rises to the surface and, carried by the wind, returns to the harbor. Still at the wheel of the ship is the rotted, ruined corpse of Angus Bee. The Widow's Walk is written by Howie Post, with art by Neil Adams. 
It was originally published in House of Mystery 179, cover dated March and April of 1969. Welcome back, dreadful listeners, and happy All Saints Day to you. I hope you had a spooktacular Halloween night, and I hope you checked out yesterday's episode of the podcast, because Ryan Daly and Doug Zavisha are picking up right where they left off, covering the last half of the Dead Man miniseries. And after that, Rob Kelly returns, bringing the Wrath of the Spectre with him. It's all coming right after this promo break. Don't fly off, listeners. hear us this is trey lawson and i'm james hickson anyone can hear this broadcast we need your help we've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named mr gravely and he's forcing us to review his collection of marvel horror comics stuff like tomb of dracula werewolf by night man thing ghost rider and so much more if you can hear this please contact our families tell them we can be found at You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. (laughs) All right, we're back. We being me, Ryan Daly, and my guest, Doug Zavisha. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great. Great. It's, all, it's almost like we didn't stop talking. <laughs> almost. Time. Almost. Yeah. We are here to finish our coverage of the 1986 Dead Man miniseries written by Andy Helfer and drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his Praise name. Praise be his name. To the yes. One, <laughs> to the, did you count the number of panels we got in this one? In issue three, there are 182. 182 panels in this issue. Whew. Yeah. Find me a trade paperback from the last three years that has 182 panels, you know? Oh, my God. I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, I wonder if, like, an average, like, issue of, like, oh, like a Brian Hitch comic would even, wouldn't even be in triple digits. But I'm trying to, like, God. Yeah, I, I, I cannot think of an artist that would be close. You might be near it with Hitch. Yeah. But that would depend on what he's working on, right? Because if right. it's an issue of Ultimates, probably not even – or just scraping double digits. I think like some of those are like three or four panels per page, probably average. But Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one of the other things um, that I didn't get into with the, the first part of this mini was uh, when we talked about the Strange Adventures issue with Dead Man. I called out the fact that no page in that first issue had more than six panels on a page. Oh, Wow. Yeah. And at one point when I was when I was making my notes about this series, I was digging through thinking, you know what, that looks like maybe maybe Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is paying some sort of homage to uh, what was drawn before, either by Infantino or, or Neil Adams. And so I went back to the original Strange Adventures stuff and went, nope, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he's well past that. Yeah, there's, there's no artistic similarities there, but yeah. Mm. All right, well then, uh, yeah, let's just dive into issue three for now. 
the third issue of this series has a cover date of May 1986. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, it was on sale February 27th, 1986. This issue is called Breaking the Barrier. Deadman is held captive in a sphere of ectoplasmic energy that contains his ghostly essence. He cannot move, he cannot speak, he can barely think. All he knows is agonizing pain. He recalls how he ended up in the spot, briefly recapping the previous two issues. We find that Boston Brand is a prisoner of the dreaded Sensei and his Society of Assassins. The evil mastermind and his warriors surround Deadman as the ectoplasm sphere, or ectosphere as I'll call it going forward, that holds the ghostly hero at bay is created by an advanced technological cannon of some sort. When the sensei is confident that Deadman can't escape, he orders his minions to leave the room. Then he pushes a button that immobilizes his own body, pinning him to the chair. With that, the spirit of a man named Jonah pops out of the sensei's body, revealing himself to be a ghost just like Deadman, although Deadman already learned this secret truth back in issue 2. Jonah does the villain monologue bit, explaining how the energy cannons that hold Deadman could also be used to destroy his spirit form permanently, and will soon be targeted against Ramakushna and the hidden city of Nandaparbat. But Jonah doesn't want to kill Boston Brand, he admits. He sees a common ally in them. Boston has every right to hate Ramakushna, too. Jonah asks the dead man to join his cause, but dead man refuses. Jonah senses that dead man's decision is more the result of anger of his brother's murder than loyalty to Rama. Yeah, that would probably be something that I would be mad about, too. Yeah, over, the nerve, right? Over time, Jonah thinks Deadman might forget about his dead brother, and Jonah, who is already centuries old, has plenty of time. In the meantime, Sensei's mad scientists perform all sorts of painful and unorthodox experiments on Boston through the ectosphere. This goes on for days until one night when Deadman is alone in the room, one of the guards decides to settle a score. The guard's name is Dolph, and he is the warrior who Deadman took possession of when he arrived in order to start a riot amongst the assassins. He wants some payback and turns the dials on the machines, causing feedback in the ectosphere that sends a surge of pain through Deadman. I'm just saying this as if all of this technological jargon makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Dolph wants Deadman to beg him to stop and keeps cranking up the juice. Deadman resists the torture, knowing this might be his one and only chance of escape if he can hold on a little longer. When Dolph's patience is at its end, Deadman mocks spitting on him. The enraged Dolph takes his weapon and swings it through the ectosphere in an attempt to bludgeon Deadman. It backfires when Deadman gets his hand on Dolph, and the contact acts as a conduit, shooting Deadman through Dolph's body and out of the ectosphere just before it explodes. Even though Deadman is free to fly around in his ghostly form again, Dolph's specially modified goggles can track him and his gun can hurt him. Other guards alerted to the explosion rush into the room. Deadman uses his aerial acrobatics to evade Dolph's gunfire while leading his shots toward the incoming reinforcements. The new guards think Dolph has been possessed by Deadman and is now attacking them, so they open fire on Dolph and Deadman is able to sneak around them and escape. Elsewhere in Nanda Parbat, Maxwell Loomis notes that all of the people in the city seem to know that doom is coming for them, but they take no action to stop it. 
Loomis recalls his own history, how he ran away from home to join the circus, but eventually his father brought him back and into his private detective agency. But once on a job, Loomis accidentally killed two innocent people. He returned to the circus in desperation, and Vashnu sent him to atone in Nanda Parbat. Now, Loomis goes again to Vashnu to tell him they need to convince Rama to defend the city. The people in the city were once cutthroat sinners and killers. Rama could reignite that fighting spirit in them so that they were not so easily conquered. Vashnu goes to Rama, but the goddess reveals that she is not as powerful as they always believed. She is not a god, in fact, but an elemental force that has always tried to strike a harmonious balance in humanity. But the balance has been tipped, and she cannot defend them from the evil that is coming. Later, Deadman arrives in the Hindu Kush mountains to find a line of displaced Nandaparbat inhabitants walking a trail to an airplane transport. Jonah slash Sensei's plan was to take them from the secret city and once their evil ways return to them, drop them in different places around the world to further his evil schemes. Deadman flies on to Nanda Parbat, fearing the battle is already lost, but once he reaches the city, he becomes human again and is quickly knocked unconscious by one of the Sensei's men. He wakes up in a prison cell along with Loomis and others. Looking out the barred window, Deadman sees that Sensei's army has already conquered the city, and now his vehicles, with their special energy cannons, are pointed right at the temple of Ramakrishna. Uh, so, the cover, we get a few different colors this time around, <laughs> um, but the cover shows Deadman, it seems like he's in his leaping forward position, except he definitely seems to be more prone and uh, a little bit more in pain as he is being experimented on by these uh, evil scientists. Yeah. The cover is definitely the most colorful of the three to mm -hmm. this point. Um, and I, I'm pushing it in front of four, uh, but we haven't gotten to four yet. Yeah. And it sets the stage for what's going on. Yeah. And you open the book and you get not the exact same image, but you get a, a replica of what's going on on the cover on the inside. But Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, being who he is, doesn't just stat it out. He draws a new image with new emotion, new agony, mm -hmm. and, and really gets the, the story going from there. Yeah, yeah, really. Um, I think I mentioned it on the last episode, but when it comes to the armaments that the Sensei's army has with all of their uh, yes. their ecto-blasters or their psi cannons, I think they're called, in the fourth issue. Yeah, I swear I had these as G.I. Joe and Cobra vehicles in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, yeah. It looked like that, exactly, yeah. Yeah, my my note says Sensei rolls up with his toy G.I. Joe crew in tow. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we start, we get... Um, it's spread across the two panels, although it's hardly a splash because we get a lot of different panels kind of recapping the previous two issues in the story. But like just like the angles and, and like the panel breakdown, all of it with in the background, Dead Man screaming in, in the close-up panel of his head and profile. That one image is just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, the the one Dead Man image alone would could fill the page and just keep you captive for a while. But then they go and recap the entire two issues before this in, what, eight panels? Yeah, yeah. Then we get the villain monologue scene, which, I mean, again, just like looking at some of the, we got like three or four pages here. I mean, it's a scene that goes on for a while, and there is a lot of talking, but 
I, I mean, I, I found it. It moved at a decent pace. I mean, Helfer was able, like, it's not, it's not stuck. It's not over wordy. It's not jargon. Like, it just, it felt kind of like natural, and it flowed, and and he got the point across. And there's like, the characters aren't just sitting there talking at each other. They're, he breaks it up with a little bit with Sensei's body being immobilized in this chair, and then him trying to yeah. escape. Jonah is an interesting. He's he's a cool villain because he is the he's the cracked mirror version of Dead Man that you get yep. like that you want in sort of an arch villain. He basically yep. had the same origin, he had the same life story, but he took a different path. And he's he because of that he sees Dead Man or he sees Boston as a potential ally. He's like she tricked you the same way she tricked me. She was never gonna let you go. Why don't you hate her like I do? Join me and we could do some great things. We've got this power that nobody else does. And it it's sort of in a way it kind of reminds me now of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two at the end when when yes. Peter is facing his his father ego and everything and he's trying to convince him, he's like join me we could do all of these things and all Peter can think about is you shouldn't have killed my mom and broke my Walkman he's so yep. singularly focused on that thing he's like you know you know what you're right we could be allies but you done screwed up by murdering my brother so sorry we're yep. not going to be on the same team that's exactly what's going on I mean this pre MCU is all the MCU <laughs> yeah. plots right yeah exactly. And then, yeah, the scene with with Jonah and everything, I think we need that because we haven't seen our main villain yet, so we need to give him some real, real estate in the book to establish right. what everything is going on, what his mad scheme is, what his relationship to Deadman is, the reason why they should be arch-villains and everything. So it, it's a longish scene to start off this book, but I think it was appropriate. And then we get into the scene with Dolph showing up and torturing him, torturing him, trying to get him to crack, when all along it's it's dead man, it's just just hold out a little bit longer, and Dolph will be the one to crack. All you gotta do is take it, all you gotta do is take the pain and I, I love it as a, as a good hero moment it's, or it feels like a classic hero moment especially for like a the blue collar type of, of hero yes. that we've described as dead man I mean, you compared him to the Ben Grimm or Cliff Steele type of character, you know, that type of personality. I think there's something uh, like a little bit, even though he's so non-physical, he has almost a bruiser's mentality, I think, in a right. little bit. So it's one of those things where it's like, it's not about how hard you can punch, it's how many punches can you take, can you take? Yep. before the other guy wears himself out, and that's when you go for the kill. Yeah, um, and, and then he, he has the presence of mind with that killing stroke, not to take the guy over, but to use him as a funnel. Exactly. Exactly. He's almost like, like his instinct is reach for the gun. No, not the gun. The hand. Get his hand. Make contact with him, like skin to skin. And that's what he does. And just like that little, that panel sequence is great. Of him just like kind of sucking himself through the body or whatever and shooting out the other side. Yeah. And Dolph's expression. <laughs> yes. He's just like, he's like, go, he's gone. I felt a chill and now he ain't in the bubble no more. Goddamn ghost man used me to get out. And then it just explodes yeah. in his face. So, yeah, and, and then the way he is able to, like, kind of, like, manipulate and play them off and, and use Dolph, his erratic shooting towards the reinforcements in order to get them to open fire on each other. So. Right. It's definitely not a by-the-numbers or prescribed story. And Helfer and, and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez tend to or, or appear to be having some fun with it and, and trying something that we haven't seen Dead Man do a whole lot of. Yeah. 
typical dead man story, he'd probably bounce in one of the guy's bodies and turn on his, his allies, you know? So then they'd think that guy took him out or whatever the case may be. But in this case, dead man has to use his brains a little bit to actually get out of the situation and to continue on his mission, which is to, to find sensei at this point. Right. Right. Cause you think, I mean, he could have tried to possess them, but maybe they have some sort of defenses for that where they would be able to resist or whatever. And then if he's drawing attention to himself, those guys would have the ability to track him. Like his, he knows that his duty isn't to fight these guys and make sure they're taken down. He just has to get out. So yep. then we move away from, from dead man, the main plot. And we go back to Nanda Parbat where things are a little bit tense and we see Maxwell Loomis has arrived there. Uh, and we get his history, and it's the like it's a really cool little interesting vignette. Um, I, I was already really on board. I liked this character from the last one, but now we find out his dad was a detective, a private detective. His mom died. He joined the circus, but then he got big enough in the circus that his dad found him and brought him back. And then this tragic moment where he kind of like described, you know, he was he was working as a de- as a private detective, and you like a, a job went bad. It looks like he's trying to stop a bank robbery. And a woman and her child just step into the line of fire, and he, he's, yeah, God. It's like that's how he ends up in Nanda Parbat. Again, just like the others that you sort of described, like, these are people who have done evil or have done wrong, and you kind of feel like something like that was probably weighing on his soul, even making him, like, suicidal. But he was able to find a kind of peace in Nanda Parbat, and Ramakrishna gave him the second life as her agent. And from there, I mean, we—I I, think—I I think part of his story, as it plays out in the Secret Origins issue, sort of fits in a, like a an interstitial chapter of this of this book. Um, yeah. And how like he and Vashnu, their their mission, sort of secretly is to is to wait for Boston to get killed, knowing all along what's going to happen. Yep. So. And that's when their mission really begins. Right. Right. And then we have the scene when Vashnu is convinced he goes and confronts Ramakrishna and. The panels and the breakdowns on this, man. And there's yeah. still there's still a lot of text on here too, and yet we still get so many little panels and breakdowns and everything and how this is done. This is incredible. And emotion. Yes, yeah. I'm just like, how many like these little like splintered effects of like just like the top right, what it seems like one panel in the top right is broken up into one, two, three, four, five, six, six yeah. little, like, splintered images of Vashnu in different positions, different close-ups of him Taking going, you on his journey. Yeah, through the temple, right to her, right to confront her. Oh, man. I, I, I just, I can't gush enough about this. Yeah, there's some storytelling art here that isn't common anymore. Right. And you just wonder, like, why, gosh, why wasn't he doing this on more books? Why, why wasn't he, like, I don't know. Why isn't he still, right? Yeah, really, really. Yeah, then Boston, he finally arrives. Um, actually, right after the page that we were looking at, I, I like that page with Taj, the guard, kind of wandering out into the snow and just seeing out of the blizzard, out of the snow, just slowly taking shape as Sensei and with his army behind him. And he's just like, yeah, you're going to want to stand down. <laughs> yeah, and we can only presume he does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dead man. He arrives, and it's just way too late. Like by the time he gets there, the city has been taken, the city has been sacked, and all he can do is show up in time to get captured and have to to witness this. Um, really cool. Like the the last page again. What he's done with last pages has been great all along. But we get the four smaller panels up the top with Loomis looking out the bars and and Boston approaching them. Uh, finally, a close up of him with this look of horror on his face. And then a big panel taking up like five sixths of like the page and everything, 
sort of framed around his two hands gripping the metal bars. Yeah. Just looking through them as we see the tanks and Jonah's elite guard getting ready to take down the temple. Yep. Yeah. So good. <laughs> Anything else to say about issue three? No. Uh, no. It's good that we get Jonah's monologue. Yeah. You know, I said no, of, but here I am talking yeah. about it. <laughs> we get a lot of information about Jonah. We get a lot of information about Max and dead man gets himself to the final position. It's, it's the transitional sort of third chapter. It's, yep. It does what it has to do. So, All right, then. Dead Man Issue 4, cover dated June 1986, on sale March 27th, 1986. Circles of Fire. Boston Brand is held prisoner along with Loomis and... Sensei? Boston attacks the man when he sees him, but soon realizes it is just the human husk of the man known as Sensei. The real evil, the man known as Jonah, has his own corporeal form now, having become human in Nanda Parbat just like Dead Man did. Jonah's elite guards take Boston and Loomis away, and Jonah explains to Sensei that once he has destroyed Ramakushna, he's going to manipulate the old man to pass all of his powerful holdings to a new body of Jonah's choosing, and then Jonah is going to kill the Sensei. Dead man's wrists are shackled, and he is lifted high off his feet from a makeshift kind of gallows in front of the temple door. Jonah repeats his plan to spread the evil doers of Nandaparba across the world, and then use the sensei's elite guards to establish the greatest criminal organization in the world. Alas, the innocent children of the secret city will have to be killed. Inside the temple, Ramakushna tells Vashnu that she has failed her mission to bring balance to the world. But there is one last chance to stop Jonah's evil scheme, but it will require sacrifice. Jonah's men point their guns at Boston and their side cannon tanks at the temple door behind him. Jonah's plan involves specific timing to shoot Boston, killing him, and then firing the ectoplasmic energy beam through his ghost self and into the temple, finally killing the dead man and Ramakushna. At the last moment, however, the temple doors swing open. Vashnu leaps out, knocking Deadman off the gallows, taking the machine gun fire that was meant for Boston. Rama beckons Boston to rush into the temple. He takes one last look at Vashnu's body before diving through the closing doors, but he takes a bullet through the midsection as he does. Boston collapses onto the floor and, bleeding out, crawls into the deepest part of the temple to confront Rama. He finds her waiting in a circle of fire just beyond a sheer drop. He apologizes for letting her down, but Rama says Boston Brand was always her greatest servant, that his rebellious streak is what made him her fiercest champion, and he could continue that battle even after she's gone, if he's willing. Just before he bleeds to death, Boston leaps into the circle of fire and falls down, down into the abyss. And that is how Boston dies again, but his spirit prevails and Dead Man is reborn. Outside the temple, Jonah curses for letting Boston escape. His guards cut a hole through the temple door. Jonah takes one of their Psy Energy guns and headsets so he can track Rama's mystical energy and goes into the temple alone to finish off Deadman and Rama. He finds her at the Circle of Fire and shoots his ecto-weapon at her. Every shot weakens not just the goddess, but the physical structure of the temple as well. Boston's spirit flies back up, but when he reaches the drop, he takes on the physical form again, including the bullet wounds. He marshals enough strength to sneak up on Jonah and pushes the man over the edge. Jonah falls into the abyss until he becomes a spirit like before. 
In doing so, he loses possession of his energy weapon. Now, with the last bit of her godly power, Ramakrishna merges her goodness with Jonah's evil to achieve a final balance. The merger destroys them both, and the storm of mystic energy shakes the temple's foundation. The elite guard of the Society of Assassins begin their retreat, now led, ironically, by the sensei who they thought was in charge all along. Max Loomis rushes back into the temple to drag Boston's body out before it collapses. On the snow-covered mountainside, Boston Brand succumbs to his wound and dies again. With his final breath, he tells Loomis to protect the innocent children of Nanda Parbat. Loomis begs the sensei leading his troops away to take the kids with them. Sensei refuses. While Jonah would have killed them there on the spot, Sensei will leave them to the mercy of the elements, while he goes about taking back control of the criminal empire. Helpless and deserted, Loomis and the children have time to hold a funeral for Vashnu, when suddenly, the Sensei's transport plane arrives. The pilot steps out and welcomes them to get on the plane so he can take them all to safety. Loomis realizes that it's Boston inside the pilot. Boston confirms that when Rama died, Boston became a ghost again, but without Rama and Nanda Parbat, he can never go back again. This is his fate, to be a ghost. But more than that, to be the new balancer of good and evil. Jonah placed tons of evildoers around the world. It is now up to the dead man to fight that evil, even if it takes forever. And that ends issue four of the miniseries. Um, looking at the cover, which, as I mentioned last time, was by John Byrne with JLGL doing the inking. The color pink is back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, it's slightly more colorful because uh, we get Jonah in his uh, fashion choices, which brings <laughs> in some purple and some blue and some orange and firing a green spectra ray. So, you know, yeah, we get why not green. have them all? Yeah, we get the whole the whole thing. We get the orange from the fire and the logo. We get Boston's red costume, the green energy from the gun, the blue and purple of the costume. Yeah, and then the pink background with Dead Man yeah. shouting, "Now you die!" What do you think of this? Uh, this cover is it's a good cover, but it's probably my least favorite of the series, um, just because uh, I don't. I, I, well, I don't have a because um, <laughs> Jonah as a villain hits the mark but he's not that dynamic to me right his tech overpowers who he is in this cover Mm -hmm. and he wasn't really sold as the villain up front enough for this to be dynamic Uh, and i think i've used dynamic a whole lot in our recording so you know it's dynamic but not dynamic uh it's decent and i'm I'm not sure why we've got john byrne because at the time he was still working for marvel if I'm not mistaken, he was still in his Fantastic Four run for Marvel. So maybe this was part of the discussions and negotiations as he was about to come over and, and do some Man of Stealing. Maybe, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with you. It is my least favorite of the four. I do think you're right. I think the weakness of this cover comes down to Jonah, him being the villain. Like, he doesn't have necessarily a great iconic signature look for being the arch nemesis, or what could have been nemesis. And the kind of future tech that's also very dated by its time kind of, like, overpowers what would be his costume. The flames effect isn't great. It's just, yeah, it's, it's a fine image, but it's not spectacular. I don't think it's all that memorable. Right. 
it's not offensive to the eye. There's nothing to complain about. It's just kind of like, yeah, okay. All right, moving on. Do you know why it's not memorable? Is there a, a trick or a technical reason? Because Dead Man's not in one of his two signature poses. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, John Byrne wasn't familiar enough with the character. <laughs> he didn't nope, know. Nope. He, he took a different angle. <laughs> oh yeah, that's why. That's yeah. He totally ruined it there. So yeah. So this being our final story, like, well, the outcome of this mini series is Helfer and Garcia Lopez kind of wiped out the mystical roots, the eastern roots of Dead Man and his whole kind of story. They took Ramakrishna and Nanda Parbat off the table and sort of Mm -hmm. made it so that Dead Man now is kind of isolated in his superhero-ness. Now it's just he he has his own agency. He's not the servant of somebody else. It's just it's his decision. His mission is going to be to, you know, fight for righteousness and fight for good and, and to stop these criminals. We've kind of taken away the the greater supernatural elements that kind of hang over him. Yeah. Now, yeah, and, and, is that an improvement, that change to his status quo? Or has he lost something kind of fundamental and unique about him? Like, um, Well, what they what they also did was they gave him a clear-cut mission before it was just to take Rama's mission of stopping evil by being good and now he's got a mission of finding these however many souls have been scattered throughout the world. Right. Um, I think if Helfer alone had been able to continue this story, I think we would have gotten some pretty interesting tales. I don't know that it's enough for an ongoing, but another four-issue miniseries would have been pretty cool. He, he could have then again given Dead Man another shift in status, which, you know, the the series of miniseries is something that's gained a little more steam lately. Yeah. But back then, it was, here's a mini-series to test the waters for the real series. Right. But I, I like what they've done with Dead Man here. I don't necessarily like they've essentially eliminated his supporting cat and replaced it with just Loomis. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, because you haven't just taken away Ramakrishna and Anaparbat. You've also taken away Vashnu. They, you've kind of taken away a lot of the the Eastern mysticism aspect of it and replaced it with now his signature supporting character is a private detective type of character. I I feel like where the character, like if he's, if he's more isolated, if he doesn't have the Eastern sort of spiritual background hanging over as his master, I think where the character would sort of naturally gravitate to based on his personality, I think you would have gotten more kind of a pulpy detective type of stories. I think, like, the next miniseries from this probably would have felt more like, you know, a, a Sam Spade noir type of adventure with a with a ghost in the lead. And I also think that yeah. could have been... I, I think that could have been very, very cool. I think that would have taken, you know, uh, the character who has been very colorful and very kind of larger than life up to this point and maybe grounded him in a darker, grittier, which certainly was prevalent at the time that this was going on, I th- I think that would have been cool. Like I, I don't know if it's an improvement, but I would have liked to see that type of avenue explored with a a a pulp detective type of dead man story that was a little bit darker, a little bit more kind of you know fifties crime noir type of thing. Yeah, and you could have built a, a, a continue or not continuing, but you could have added to his rogues at that point. Yeah, or built him a rogues gallery. Right. You know, because Jonah maybe is still up there. I mean, we never saw a body, but we do have the story that 
he cancels Rama out, or Rama and he cancel each other out. We still have Sensei, in, like, in as much as Sensei is kind of a, a different character, but not really different. He's still pretty much the same thing. He's still the head of the Society or League of Assassins at this point, so... Right. Um, you know, we still got him, and, like, that, that brings up all the sorts of, you know, other evil assassin type of characters, people like Lotus, people like the Hook that we, you know, we've seen, so... There's, there's always that type of thing that you could build a rogues around. Yeah, yeah. With this issue, I, I didn't give you the panel report. This one had the most of all four with 202 panels. <sighs> and all four issues were 22 pages. <laughs> so the, the total for the series was 720 panels. That's not counting covers. 720. Yep. Across four issues. That's, oh, jeez, that's... That's math. <laughs> I know, but no, I'm even still just thinking, like, over 200, like, that's... Yeah. Just in, in like, a 22-page comic, that's, you know, that's the, what, you know, the, how the, the average breaks out, it's just, it's staggering. And, but the thing is, like, the pages, they don't feel crowded... You don't feel like no. you're losing story. It flows perfectly. Like, you know, it's it's the the art is good. The detail is there. The craft and the, the art here is is really incredible, and and it's still fast paced and it's an engaging climax with fun character beats and moments. It's so well done. I mean, our our conversation doesn't give it the justice it deserves, right. and this miniseries. Had a pretty decent print run, I imagine, because I've seen it more than than once, if not the entire series, at least two or three of the issues in bargain bins. Yeah, you know, and if if any listener doesn't have this, uh, the only way that you can get it digitally is to buy the collections that it's in, and it's only in one collection. A while back, DC did five digital collection or five trade paperbacks, and they've got the digital collections of those. So. Yeah, I think you know, this one is in keep, volume five. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for this thing because yeah. uh, it, it's worth your buck if you find it in a bargain bin. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. Just pick these up. It's a good, it's an engaging story. It's great art. It's not a horror story. I mean, like, when, like kind of coming back to something that we were saying, like, along with Dead Man, for being this, being the, the DC horror podcast. He's not necessarily the horror character, although we've had some more some other Dead Man stories that we can hopefully come back to that do fit more into that mold. He is more towards like the the adventuring superhero ter- character who has a a supernatural hook. But gosh, yeah, he's hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I I still I still like the idea. Like, I mean, it sort of occurred to me back when I read the Secret Origin for the first time, and and I think we talked about a lot is like what you could do with this character. I mean, I, I still see the basic pitch is it's a supernatural quantum leap. Um, yep. Like that would be my pitch for an ongoing serial in whatever media, television, comics, animation, that's something. But I think you could get like no end of, of great material from this, great performances from actors basically having to play dual roles um, when yeah. he is possessing them. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's a character who you could do so much with. Um and yep. hopefully we will get to do some more Dead Man with the, in the future of this podcast because I mean I, I do like this character and I like talking to you about him so I, I hope that we can get to some other stories in the future. I am certainly willing, and if we need uh, Saint Martin Gray to point us out to some more, we can we can call upon him. I'm sure. <laughs> Every once in a while, I just need to just hey hey, what time is it? 
one of the ones that would be fun to do uh, as far as dead man is we could even bring in the swamp thing side of this podcast and take a look at those challengers issues oh yeah yeah definitely those are fun too yeah yeah, I, I think we've we've said a lot about this series over two episodes. So, and you've, I mean, you, you boiled it down to people. If you see this, you've got to pick it up. You've got to read these stories because it's it is definitely worth your your investment, your time, your money. So, uh, go out and find the Dead Man miniseries by Helfer and JLGL. Praise be his name to the praise to, be his name to the seven hundred and twentieth power. 20th, yes. <laughs> God. Ah. Yep. I mean, it, it is. It's it's a 180 panel average per issue. That's, oh, it, that's incredible. It's incredible. All right. Well, Doug, thank you again for coming back to the show and being my guest on another episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where else can people find you if they want to talk to you? Ryan, it was my pleasure to be here. Um, as far as where can people find me, I am on Twitter. That's at uh, DZavisha, Z-A-W-I-S-Z-A, and I spelled it real fast, so you're going to have to <laughs> change your podcasting speed. Um, and for the most part, I've still got my blog at mygreatestadventure80.blogspot.com, which is all about the Doom Patrol, mostly about the Doom Patrol. And, and through the Doom Patrol, I may or may not get around to helping the guys at waitingfordoom.com, and that's Paul and Mike. Uh, they've given me an open offer to... to contribute some stuff to the website there and i just haven't had the time of day to to squeeze that in with the way life's been treating me but that's where i can be found and like i said on the last episode i'm around just assume, like dead man i would just like that i would assume that any offer made by paul is a trap <laughs> so it's a trap <laughs> <laughs> Folks, we're going to take another promo break right now, uh, and after that, I will be back with your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. All right, we're back, but I have to confess that I lied at the end of the last segment. This is not going to be the listener feedback section because the previous episode dropped yesterday. So I haven't had time to collect that feedback, assuming I even got any. Instead, I am going to cover your feedback for both of these two episodes on the next show, which will come out before Christmas. But I didn't want to cut this episode short, especially since this is episode 25, and that feels like it should be a bigger deal, because comic books always make milestones of issue numbers that are multiples of 25. So... I wanted to add some extra content, extra value to this episode. I thought of doing another random House of Mystery story review by myself, but that seemed too small. Instead, I roped Rob Kelly in to cover a Spectre story that he called dibs on, like, three years ago. Rob, welcome back to the show. You're, uh, you're really setting me up for failure here, because everybody's expecting to hear their name on the show via feedback, and then it's like, oh great, Rob's here instead. That's way better than hearing my name on the show. They will hear it. They will just have to wait. <laughs> Anticipate. 
you know. Patient. <laughs> well, the story that we're talking about is The Nightmare Dummies and the Spectre, and it originally appeared in Adventure Comics 434, which was cover dated July August of 1974, with an on-sale date of April 30th, 1974. Uh, before we dive into the story, Rob, I know you've got quite a history with Adventure Comics because it was the home of Aquaman for so long. You're also a professed lover of the artist Jim Aparo, who was the mm-hmm. artist question on this particular run. But what is your history with this particular run, this little set of issues starring the Spectre by Michael Fleischer and Jim Aparo? Well, I certainly didn't buy them uh, off the stands at the time because I would have been too young. But I remember discovering them at the first comic book store that I ever shopped at, which was called El Dorado Comics in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And uh, I remember – I don't exactly remember which issue it was, but – I saw it and I was like, "Ooh, that looks because I'm is already a fan of Jim Aparo. And I just thought, "Wow, that looks really cool. And so I bought just one of them randomly. I'm sure I bought whichever was cheapest because I didn't have that much. (laughs) Despite my reputation, I did not have that much money to spend. Nobody believes you. Nobody believes you. All right. okay. So I had my butler pick out one of the issues. (laughs) And uh, but anyway, I brought it home. And like a lot of people, I was just pretty shocked about how grisly it was. And of course, I loved it because I was like, cool. The Spectre's like really doling out some medieval justice here so uh, or not medieval actually old testament is probably more <laughs> accurate so I, I really liked it and i think every time i took a trip back to uh, the comic store which was pretty frequent i asked my dad uh i i probably bought every issue that i could get my hands on because i just thought the run was so cool and i had no idea that it was uh so brief you know I mean, it was like not even like 10 issues long I, I back then i thought things ran you know for years at a time i didn't realize that things you know could kind of come in and out so quickly. So I, I recognized early on that it was pretty brief, but it was pretty special. And then later on when they reprinted it in the Baxter format, I was like, oh, okay, this is obviously a pretty renowned series because it's getting the deluxe treatment. All right. Well, we'll talk more about this specific one afterwards, but uh, first I've got to tell you what happens in this issue. So Frank and Pete are driving a moving truck for the Monarch Mannequin Company and thinking about the end of the day when they can hit a bar and knock back a couple of beers. Frank hears a sound coming from the back of the truck, so they pull over, knowing that the head of the company, Mr. Monarch, will kick their butts if anything happens to their cargo. Frank goes around back and opens the cargo doors. The truck is full of mannequins. He goes inside to get a better look, making sure none of them are damaged, when the door suddenly slams shut, trapping him inside. Pete hears his friend let out a blood-curdling scream. He grabs a crowbar and runs around to the back of the truck. The cargo doors swing wide open, and a nightmare image freezes the blood in Pete's veins. The mannequins leap out of the truck as if they are alive, and they descend on Pete. He swings the crowbar, knocking the plaster head off of one of the mannequins, but their numbers overwhelm him. As the living dolls pound on him with their plastic fists, one of them picks up the crowbar and bludgeons Pete to death. Later, the police arrive on the scene with no explanation for the two dead men and the lifeless mannequins lying scattered around. The only thing the cops are sure of is that Detective Corrigan will love this case. Elsewhere, at a sporting goods store, a customer is about to check out when a store mannequin dressed as a hunter and brandishing a double-barreled shotgun seems to come alive. It turns the gun on the cashier and customer and shoots them dead. Across town, the display mannequins at a bridal shop begin to slaughter the people in the store. 
At the same time, Lieutenant Jim Corrigan is stuck in the back of a taxi with a driver who fails to pick up on Corrigan's disinterest. A squad car speeds past the taxi, and Corrigan overhears the radio dispatcher calling all units to the bridal shop. The taxi driver checks his mirror to find the backseat suddenly empty, for Jim Corrigan has already transformed into the Spectre and used his supernatural power to appear in the store. He witnesses a mannequin dressed in a groom's tuxedo strangle a man to death. Then the specter incinerates the mannequin. More cops arrive on the scene to find the store littered with dead bodies and what look to be discarded mannequins dressed in bridal gowns. The cops are surprised to find Corrigan already on site. They're even more incredulous at the story told by the survivors that the store dummies attacked them. Corrigan follows his only lead to the Monarch Mannequin Company and meets the owner, J.R. Monarch. Monarch shows Corrigan the factory floor where most of the mannequins are assembled, but the mere fact that most, not all, are made there troubles Corrigan. Monarch takes the detective downstairs to a small studio where Zeke Borosovich continues to craft some of the mannequins by hand. Monarch keeps Zeke on staff for sentimental reasons, despite the old man's rather eccentric work habits and attitudes about his craft. While Monarch thinks it's ridiculous that mannequins could come to life and commit acts of violence, Zeke is a lot more open to the idea, given the miserable lives that mannequins live. I mean, if you consider them living at all. As Corgan leaves the factory, his sort of girlfriend Gwen Sterling races over to talk to him. She desperately wants to be with him, but Corrigan brushes her off, stating emphatically that they can't be together because, well, he's a ghost. He walks off, leaving Gwen devastated, not because he's really dead, but that he doesn't want to date her. Old Zeke comes upon Gwen and offers to comfort her back in his studio. He sits her down and goes to make her some tea, promising that he knows exactly how to bring her and Corrigan together. Later, Gwen comes to Jim Corrigan's apartment. He reiterates his problem with them dating, being that he's dead. Gwen says nothing, merely takes a cleaver out of her purse and tries to hack him to death, but the swing passes harmlessly through him. Corrigan turns into the Spectre and telekinetically tosses the cleaver around, hacking her arms, legs, and head clean off. Of course, it's not really Gwen, but a dummy dressed to look like her, and the body parts lying on the ground are just plaster and paint. The real Gwen is tied up in her underwear in Zeke's workshop. The old man cackles that by now his mannequin has killed Corrigan, but at that moment the Spectre arrives to bring Zeke to justice. Zeke commands the small army of mannequins in his workshop and sends them to kill the Spectre, but the Spirit of Vengeance effortlessly melts them to puddles of plaster. Zeke holds a knife to Gwen's throat in a desperate bid to escape the Spectre's wrath, but one look from the ghost puts an end to his hope. Sometime later, a different pair of men drive a monarch cargo truck to an empty lot where they're burning all of Zeke's mannequins. The men notice that one of the dummies looks like a frightened old man. Of course, it's Zeke now turned into a mannequin himself by the Spectre's power. From a distance, Corrigan and Gwen watch Zeke and his evil dummies burn until there is nothing of their evil remains. And that was The Nightmare Dummies and the Spectre. It was written by Michael Fleischer, penciled, actually, by Frank Thorne, with inks and letters by Jim Aparo, who also did the cover. Uh, The art continuity slash layouts was by Russell Carley, and the book was edited by Joe Orlando. So, Rob, you know we know how much you like Jim Aparo. 
but this one was not actually penciled by Jim Aparo. I mean, you can you can feel his touch on this because of the inking, but what did you think of the art in this one? Well, uh, I mean, I love Frank Thorne as well. Uh, in fact, uh, when I did an, an appearance on uh, the Longbox Crusade for the Cr- Crusademus, I specifically uh, talked about a Tomahawk comic because it was drawn by Frank Thorne because I think he's very still underrated. I'm not sure whether Aparo and Frank Thorne together are more than the sum of their parts. Uh, I think they're both superb artists, but I don't know together if they're necessarily each other's strength. Um, I see a lot. I mean, I see the fade, the Aparo faces here mm-hmm. uh, and some of the layouts seem to be kind of Aparo-ish to me. So I can't quite figure out who did what. I see that, you know, you mentioned Frank Thorne gets top billing. So presumably he did the pencils and the layouts and then Aparo did the inks. Um, and maybe that was, in fact, the, the combination here. But I don't know. There's some panels that seem to me much more Aparo than others. Even one panel that me to, to me feels like a, a Neil Adams face, actually. And I wonder if he stepped in just for, uh, you know, the one little uh, – detail there but uh but otherwise i think it's a really beautiful looking book uh it's certainly well we can talk about it uh as we get on to the story there's some really amazing bits of violence here there's some sex i mean this is michael fleischer pushing the limits (laughs) of what he could do with i mean every issue he was really pushing the limits and i actually had to go back and double check that this did in fact have a comics code stamp on it because this is definitely i'd say of the of the issues of this run this is fleischer pushing the grindhouse elements of these stories the most because it's got the most gore quote-unquote gory violence and the most sex uh it really is pretty extraordinary that uh, this was a dc superhero book uh, presumably yeah i I noticed the art even before i realized that it was a different penciler or uh, presumably frank thornton was the penciler i noticed the art felt a little bit different but it didn't it didn't seem jarring enough to think that it wasn't Aparo, but there are definitely a, there are a few panels where you can say it's like, yeah, that doesn't necessarily look like an Aparo face. Yeah, um, I yeah. think the first time we see Zeke, which would be on page nine, um, when he's in his huff, like he's got sort of like the I don't know if it's an, like an inking factor or he's kind of got like the gin, but the, to me that looks like a Bernie Wrightson face, like <laughs> he's got mm. like that type of character or just that profile. But uh, yeah, I, I could be wrong about that. I, I don't. I'm not saying Bernie Wrightson like worked on that. I, I don't think he did. But it just seems like with like the wrinkles and the sort of like the the profile, like that type of chin and everything like that, like, seems a little bit more accentuated, a little bit more gangly. Yeah, I mean, uh, also one of the things that Frank Thorne didn't have a lot of heavy blacks in his work, and Aparo did, and so you can see some of these pages are very kind of light in some ways, and so to me that feels like a very Frank Thorne kind of thing. Um, the face of the one truck driver, the guy. That's, did you hear that? What kind of noise was that? <laughs> that's a Frank Thorne face. That's not a Jim Aparo face. So I mean, it, it, and of course it could have varied, you know, as the, from page to page. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean there's any one flat rule about how much they did it, but although, otherwise it's a nice looking book. Certainly, I mean, there's again, they're two master artists working together. It's kind of a fun, fun little curio to see them put pair together, but you, I don't think you really ever saw much. What did you think of the story overall? I love the story. I mean, I think it's just, it's straight up grisly horror and it's Michael Fleischer kind of getting away with some incredible violence because they're mannequins. Yeah. You can just say, oh, it's mannequins. It's kind of like how Raiders of the Lost Ark is considered at this point family entertainment, even though a guy's <laughs> head explodes in it. Uh, and another guy's face melts, but it's because they're Nazis. Right. And that that's okay. Uh, but here, I mean, and they even kind of cheat a little in the one panel where, you know, when, when what's her name? Oh, what is her name? Um, Gwen. Gwen shows up uh, and she, you know, attacks Jim with the cleaver and then he turns the cleaver on her and then he hacks her up. The background is colored red. 
So when you see her limbs get separated, it kind of looks like blood. It can't technically be blood because the comics code didn't allow that. But it sort of looks like it because it's the background bleeding through. So it gives it even more of a kind of gory feel to it. And, I mean, they don't shy away from just kind of, again, the grisliness of – if you hacked up a mannequin with a cleaver, it would still be kind of grisly because it would be dirty and filthy and whatever. I mean, obviously it wouldn't be full of blood, but it's got a little more to it. And so – uh, I, I and I love this sort of just how they don't really kind of hide it. I mean, the panel where all the dummies are attacking the bridal, like the, the brides are attacking and like they've all just got knives <laughs> and you just know they're about to stab all these people to death. It's really again, it's amazing that the Fleischer got away with this. Yeah, I think like the one thing like on page eight, when you see the aftermath, when they're just like bodies just strewn about and you don't know who are victims and which ones are dummies like. I think the only thing that's missing from that panel is the blood. Like if that, like yeah, you yeah. get the sense that that room would have just been drenched, like the floor would have been completely red and soaked. Yeah, um, it would look but, like an abattoir if yeah, it, yeah, it's exactly. a bit done nowadays. Yeah, but you still get the yeah. I mean, you definitely get the sense of like how ruined it is. And I actually think what felt to me like kind of like the most shocking. I just want to read this. This is on page four. This is just Fleischer's prose. Like this is just the captions when this poor driver is being killed. Nightmares can be funny things, so scary when they have you in their grip, so silly once the sight has ended. Poor Pete didn't have a chance against all those creatures, but he fought his nightmare as best he could. You have to give him credit for that. And as the nightmare ended, as one of those awful mannequins grabbed Pete's crowbar and smashed his brains into gory splinters, Pete remembered his childhood and prayed they wouldn't punish him for being late to school again. Isn't it funny the things you think of as your life's blood drains away? Like, that's the prose in, like, the captions (laughs) as, like, the the contrast of, like, the scene of him being just swarmed by these, like, dummies, these mannequins that are beating him with a crowbar. It's like, that's, like, Stephen King text. It's like, holy God. Like, what is – like, I got to that picture. I was like, whew, this story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is this guy's thinking of his childhood as he's being beaten to death by mannequins. And I, I, I love the little detail in that top panel where he hits the one mannequin in the head with a crowbar and you see its eyeball pop yes. out. Yes. <laughs> That's great. Like, oh my God. Yeah, it's nuts. And I mean, it's I think it's also telling that, I mean, maybe Fleischer, I mean, he, he was definitely pushing it, but he must have felt like he had the, the he was able to because this story is 20 pages long. Prior to that, the three issues in this run preceding it were all 12 or 13 issues. Right, so and after Jordan this, Lando, Aquaman takes over in yeah. the backup. So this is like one of like pretty much the only full-length Spectre story from this run. Yeah, so maybe Joe Orlando was like, you know what? Go ahead. Go nuts. You know, I'm, I'm giving you the whole book to do it. And then he got this, and he's like, all right, got to rein you in a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I'd said, I think this is – it really is a, just a beautiful – this would have worked great as a – I mean, except for the part of being the Spectre. Uh, this would have worked great as like a creep show segment. Yeah, yeah, you know, it has that feel to it of this, of this kindly. Well, he's actually not kindly, but of this sort of lonely old man that's obsessed with making these mannequins, and these are his, these are his, uh, you know, they're like his creatures. And in fact, there's even a little bit of a similarity uh, to a, a movie from 1981 called Dead and Buried, featuring uh, uh, Jack Albertson from Willy Wonka as a um, as a, a coroner. Hmm. Who uh, is a little too enamored with the job he does uh, on the uh, on restoring corpses to their sort of pristine condition? It sort of reminded me of that as well. And so again, it's really it's again, yeah. it's a beautiful story. And boy, the you know Jim Aparo, 
I mean, I know. How many times have I talked about Jim Aparo across the hundreds of podcasts I've done at this point? But I don't think he gets enough credit in some ways as being um, a, a good girl artist, as they say. Oh, yeah. For drawing beautiful women. But that pose where Gwen shows up, like, we realize it's the fake Gwen. Right. But the Gwen, the, her in her little hip hugger jeans, mm-hmm. uh, and she shows up. And then later on, where she's in her her basically her underpants. Yeah. I, that is the that is the skimpiest you could get away with in a code approved comic of having a woman undressed outside of a Conan book. Right. And Joan Jim Apparel really she's, she's really right. it's very it's very, very sexy. And there's even some perverted thing where what's his name says, by all means, keep on keep on trying because he says hey, it's no use struggling with my pet. The ropes are far too tight. By all means, keep on trying. You look so so fetching when you strain against the bonds. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I think Zeke's got some problems. <laughs> oh boy, he needs to get out more. Oh my yeah. god, I I do have to wonder though. Does Michael Fleischer not know how to spell mannequin? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too when I was doing my recap. I was like, that's that's not. There's not a K in mannequin. No, it's you know, has 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 anyone not seen Mannequin Two on the move? It's <laughs> you spell it with a Q. What's the now? I luckily, wonder, I wonder if it's, just, it's easier for the for the letterer to write it that way because it's slightly fewer letters. <laughs> like, maybe I don't like, know. I've never seen this spelling of mannequin. I mean, we know that uh, Michael Fleischer was a little on the litigious side. <laughs> uh, no, he can't. He's unfortunately passed away, so he can't he can't sue me for saying that. But I do wonder. Did he not know or? Or Joe Orlando? Did any of them not know how to spell mannequin? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I love the. Um, oh, I'm sorry, but I love it the at, when the specter uh, you know takes on Zeke. And I love the comment about he says, "Save your magical man. You will need it to ease your boredom during the eternity and perdition <laughs> that awaits you." That is one of the to me one of the creepier elements of the idea of going to hell is that it's yeah. it's forever. And um, kind of t- to tie it back into the specter a little bit, there's a great – again, I'm sorry not to get off of the story. But there's a great moment in – I think it's Swamp Thing number 50 or Swamp Thing annual number two. I forget which one, but which actually guest stars the specter. Mm-hmm. And it's after they've killed Swamp – it's after Arcane has died and he has gone to hell. And Swamp Thing arrives to rescue Abby because she's been consigned to hell as well. And he runs into Arcane and Arcane is being like munched on by all these demons. And it's, you know, he's obviously being tortured. And he says to Swamp Thing, how many years have I been here? And Swamp Thing's like, Arcane, you've been here less than five minutes. (laughs) And he lets out this blood curdling scream knowing that, you know, it's like, (laughs) so I love that uh, Spectre mentions that here in that moment where he turns all the mannequins to goo. And that's kind of like I, that was one of the things that I noticed was obviously it, it's comics you don't get in, you don't it's a supernatural comic or whatever there's not going to be necessarily a scientific explanation but I was a little bit surprised there wasn't a little bit more of a expository moment where Zeke kind of explains like why he's doing this or like how his magic works like that that line from the spectre like save your magical bin that's really the only acknowledgement we get that somehow Zeke is able to bring these things to life and sends them off like on and like to, to kill people because he's pissed off about something. Like I, I don't even know. Like I, I, I kind of expected a little bit more of an exp- exposition, even knowing that it's not necessary. I mean, what, what exposition would actually be satisfactory, but I just, yeah. kind of, I, I was sort of just expecting it because I thought, well, that's sort of what you do in this type of story. Uh, and they really didn't. They were just like, no, it, it happens just because it happens. It, that's that's not the important beat that we're going to dwell on. We're going to dwell on the specter just melts these things into pools of like pinkish plaster sludge. And, 
I, I think we can lay, lay the blame on this squarely on the feet of uh, Russell Carley and for poor script continuity. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Whatever the hell that credit means. I think he was the one who was doing more of like the layouts and everything like that. And I think it, if Aparo was working on something else at the same time, I think for a lot of this run, Aparo wasn't doing the layouts himself. He was just doing the pencils. So uh, if that was the case, I mean, that would have made, you know, three artists on this one. I always thought Russell Carley was a fake guy because I've never heard of him outside of these stories. Like I've never heard, I've never seen his name. Now, apparently he was, in fact, a real person, but I always thought it was like a pseudonym for somebody just because it's like, who is this guy that's working with Jim Aparo? And then I've never heard of him. I've never seen him on another DC book. I was sort of confounded by that. But I don't know. That's great. I, I mean, Jim Aparo was one of their superstars at this point. He was doing Brave and the Bold. And I think he was doing uh, – he might have even been doing The Phantom Stranger at the same time. Uh, so, I mean, he was he was pretty busy. So they probably tried to find a way to maximize his output by, okay, you know, Jim, you can just do pencils. You don't have to worry about the layouts or something like that. Now that I think about like the fact that this was the one issue that was longer, the story was mm. more pages, that's probably a contributing factor of why he couldn't do this one all by himself, why they had to bring in somebody else to help. Could be, could be. Uh, I do have to wonder why this story is called The Nightmare Dummies and the Spectre. Like, what's just wrong with The Nightmare Dummies? Like, every, I don't really, is it, every you story don't and the Spectre. Every story in this run ends with something the Spectre. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of unnecessary, really. Yeah, I, I agree, but yeah. The Nightmare Dummies is fine. I mean, it tells you everything you need to know. It's, it's a good story. Like I said, I think, it, I, I think this whole run is great. Yeah, they did get a little on the repetitive side because they were, you know, just the specter of just like, all right, let's find new and imaginative ways of killing people. Mm-hmm. But there's still a lot of fun. And this one just to me is just it's it's Fletcher just getting away with as much as he can in terms of the, the, the sheer nightmarish violence of it. And of course, I enjoy all that. Right, right. No, I, I do too. This is definitely this was one of the highlights of this story, just because of how crazy the story is, how how violent, how imaginative it is, um, and not to undersell it, but how good Gwen looks because she looks really good in this. She's she's gorgeous seventies chick in this one, no doubt about it. Um, all right, cool. Any other thoughts about this one? I did want to mention just one last thing with the the layouts, uh, and it's page twelve. Where, uh, or excuse me, page 13, where Jim Corrigan is talking to uh, Mr. Monarch. And I love how in this three successive panels, they start at the top left and it's a close up of Jim and Monarch talking. And as they get further away, the camera pans out a little further. And the, the it, it like look Iris is out. Yeah, uh, it's it's a very kind of old timey movie style, really. It's almost like the way he, uh, George Lucas did on Star Wars. Sorry to bring that up, Ryan, but I mean we would do Star Wars. He would Iris in and Iris back out, and so I liked it. In that first panel, you don't see. Uh, Zeke listening in and then the second panel you see that he is and then the third panel you see him cradling the mannequin head as as uh, Monarch and, and Corrigan talk but they're further away it's a really nice little nice little bunch of uh, layouts there I, I totally agree like the way that's done and it's like interesting like structure like the way he like frames like the panels and everything like the geometric mm-hmm. shape of them but yeah he keeps them so that they're getting smaller and they're fading but the dialogue stays with them and mm-hmm. you know you hear, mm-hmm. because they're talking to Zeke, and then you pull out to realize that he's he's hearing this, and he's he's overhearing like the the last shot of him cradling that head, and you know, kind of. I mean, if you if you follow these types of stories, <laughs> you know he's going to target. He, he's out for revenge. They're speaking ill of him. They're they're on the list. Certainly, Corrigan is now in his crosshairs. So, 
Yeah, it's really sharp. Oh, and I have one last, I swear, I love Gwen's ride, her convertible. <laughs> yeah. She's awesome. She's got this fire red convertible, man. She is a happening chick. I love, yeah, she, that, that sweater too. I, I'm thinking about now when she comes to his door, like that low cut sweater and everything, or the orange striped shirt. She, yeah. she needs a who's who entry, damn it. She deserved <laughs> one. She was, she was in a lot of these issues. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming back to the House of Midnight. Where else can people find you on the network? Oh, I'm all over this network. Uh, just wait long enough, and eventually one of my shows will pop up. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for coming along and helping cover the story. Uh, I, you probably won't be gone for very long because I need to get you on the next time I cover a Swamp Thing story, too. Cool. Yeah. So thank you very much, Rob Kelly, for being on this episode. I also want to thank Doug Zavisha for appearing on these two episodes to cover the Dead Man miniseries. Again, all of your feedback, ladies and gentlemen, for those stories as well as the Spectre story will be covered in the Christmas episode coming out next month. Thanks for listening, and have a good midnight.